Welcome to today's episode of the Purdue ASME American Society of Mechanical Engineers podcast, which aims to provide an outlet for not only Purdue students, but all students, learners, and aspiring professionals around the world to learn from experienced professionals in the field of engineering and beyond. I'm your co-host, Liam Kaufman, and joining me today is my fellow co-host, Agathea Tharun, who will introduce our guest on today's episode. On today's episode, we are joined by Dr. Eckert A. Grohl. Dr. Grohl is the Riley Professor of Mechanical Engineering at Purdue University, where he also serves as the Associate Dean for Undergraduate and Graduate Education in the College of Engineering. He holds a doctorate in Mechanical Engineering from the University of Hanover in Hanover, Germany. He has had numerous awards over his career in the areas of teaching, research, and innovation. His research centers around thermodynamics, specifically for high-performance buildings, sustainability, and transportation. Dr. Girl, we are really excited to have you on the podcast today, so thanks for joining us. Yes, thank you very much. Good morning, everyone. Uh, I have to uh, tell you, I have to make a correction. I'm no longer the Associate Dean for Undergraduate and Graduate Education. I'm actually the William E. and Florence E. Perry Head of the School of Mechanical Engineering. Interesting. Okay. That's even better. <laughs> We're excited to have you today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So uh, starting off, I'd say let's just um, hear about how, do you, how did you get involved with uh, where you are today as head of the department? Yeah, it's a long road. I've been at Purdue now 28 years, uh, and I first came to the United States as a German exchange student, uh, first time in 1988 uh, to Texas A&M. I uh, then went back to Germany to finish my diploma in mechanical engineering. And then I uh, went, uh, uh, switched universities in Germany, went from Bochum to Hanover for my PhD, and had the opportunity after two years into that program to go to the University of Maryland uh, to do part of my PhD research. It was initially just planned for one year, uh, but then I stayed in Maryland, uh, stayed there as a postdoc, and then had the opportunity to come to Purdue in '94. So I started as a young assistant professor in 94 and then moved up the ranks, uh, became an associate professor in 2000, became a full professor in 2005 and was uh, uh, promoted to the name professorship, the Riley professorship in uh, 2013. Uh, so that's the uh, kind of the professorial uh, runway kind of saw for me. Uh, but uh, in the meantime, I had an interest in giving back to the community. I was an exchange student coming to the U.S. And so uh, in 2003 already, we started uh, the GEAR program. You may be familiar with this. It's our flagship global exchange program. Um, so uh, students do language, uh, do a domestic and international internship, and uh, then do a one semester of study abroad, all in one language, right? Um, and uh, so we started it and uh, rolled it out in ME uh, with the six students in 2003. Next year we have our 20-year anniversary. Um, but uh, with this program, I started doing some administrative work for the university. So I uh, uh, pretty soon became a director within the School of ME for experiential learning, right, which included study abroad activity, global activities, but also co-op and internship. Uh, and then uh, because of the success we had in ME, the dean asked me to do that for the college. So I became the director of the Office of Professional Practice, which still runs the GEAR program today, as well as co-op and internship programs uh, that, that they had done for, for many decades before. And uh, based on that success, I eventually became uh, associate dean. Uh, 
So uh, the Meng Chang, who was uh, the dean up until the summer for the last five years, appointed me as associate dean. And then, uh, then the position in ME came about, and I had a strong interest coming back to the school of ME. So uh, I applied to be head of uh, ME and got appointed um, three years ago in uh, July of uh, 2019. So it's a, it's a process, right? It's nothing like that you do like all of a sudden uh, you, you decide, okay, you're going to be, be ahead or something. Uh, I participated in several uh, academic leadership programs during that time to prepare myself uh, for an administrative uh, uh, career as well to my academic career. It's quite the journey. So two things. You said you went to Texas A&M. Yeah. Um, and their mascot is Aggies. Yes. And that's, that's just really cool to me. Every time someone goes from A&M, I... But you know what that stands for in my mind? Aggie? Yeah. It's just a farmer. <laughs> it comes from agriculture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Especially so, agriculture engineering, yeah. Yeah, right? It's, uh, but it's, uh, and that's uh, one of the uh, their yells when they go to football games. They yell. They don't necessarily do uh, uh, songs or other things, right? So one is like, uh, yeah, there's a farmer's fight. Mm. So that's like Eggie's fight, you know. <laughs> I so, love that. Yeah. I should have gone there. <laughs> I was actually, um, I'm from Maryland. Okay. So I was debating my, my final two choices were between Purdue and Maryland. Uh, Purdue was out of state, but better engineering program. And yep. Maryland was like very equally ranked, but in state. How do, how do you think um, Maryland compares to, or how, does, how is Purdue better than Maryland and compares to many other schools in terms of their engineering program? Like what sets us apart, would you say? Uh, so we have more resources. There's no question. Um, Maryland, uh, this, the undergraduate uh, student to faculty ratio is roughly 30 to one, uh, which means right for every 30 students, you have one faculty member. Our uh, student to uh, uh, faculty ratio is be just below 20 to one. And so we can uh, pay a lot more personalized attention uh, to uh, the individual students in the undergraduate studies. Uh, but uh, on top of it, we don't have to teach as much as a faculty in Maryland. And if we, our faculty don't have to teach as much today, can embark more on research careers. And research efforts really move you up in the ranking. That's uh, the prime uh, factor, right? How you can move the needle, right? What are your research expenditures? How much PhD students do you graduate per faculty? How many papers do you write? And uh, if you have more time, uh, you can do better. But even the undergraduate program will greatly benefit from that because you have faculty in the classroom that uh, are very well versed with uh, research activity, they have large programs, and hopefully, and in many cases I'm sure they do, bring that research to the classroom. And so you always uh, see cutting edge stuff even in the classroom because of the activities. Right? So, so in regards to getting into research, um, I know for a lot of students it could be really tough to decide what they want to research because, yeah. I mean, within any domain, there's so many different possibilities to, uh, to study. So what, would you, what advice would you give to a student who's um, trying to figure out what they would like to research um, and just go down that path? Mm -hmm. So uh, for me, it's extremely important that you gather experiences um, these are experiential learning experiences while you go through your studies. It's not just doing the curriculum, 
right, going to classes and doing well in your classes. To be a well-rounded graduate from Purdue, uh, you need to take, uh, take advantage of the opportunities that we give you, and we give you plenty of opportunities. So in ME, uh, I wrote, uh, I actually we started it as associate dean for the college, but now as a head of the school, I'm, uh, I'm fully vested in it. We rolled something out that we call uh, in, uh, in Pursuit of 100% Grit. I don't know if uh, you guys have heard this yet, but uh, Grit stands for a global experience, a research experience, an industry experience, and a team project experience. And I want 100% of our ME students to have one experience in all four categories. Now, we are far away from that goal. Uh, last May, we graduated, uh, let's say, 360 or so, maybe close uh, to that somewhere, uh, students. Two of them had four out of four, two students. So next year, I, start, I will give out awards. If you have four out of four, you get a great award um, because it's still a small number. But we have close to 100% who have one out of four. Right? So we still have a long way to go. But um, the key is, as an undergraduate student, you want to go abroad and see the world. Uh, right? Pursue, and you don't have to do gear, right? which is very intensive, but uh, do a, a Maymaster, do a summer experience, uh, right? do, uh, go someplace and see a different academic environment. I think it's, uh, it's a very valuable experience to, to see how other universities uh, run things for a little while. Right? Um, you uh, you want to do research. We ramped up research tremendously. Um, during the three years that I've been in, we now have close to, uh, I think last year, over the entire year, like uh, fall, spring, summer, we had over 250 students in research experiences, like undergraduate research experiences in our research labs throughout um, ME. So we are, uh, we're going to graduate probably close to 400 students this coming May. So we had 250 right that have an experience per year. We still have a little bit to go, but if we ramp this up a little bit more, we can get right. If I be at 400 right now we could offer one experience to every graduating student at the end, right? They all have a uh, possibility to do one throughout their studies. Um, industry, we're doing very well. Over 90% of our students have an industry experience, either an internship or do co-op or so. And the few who do not, sometimes international students who do not have uh, the, uh, uh, have maybe some visa challenges or some, uh, some other things that uh, prevent them from, from getting the opportunity. So we're still thinking about uh, to create maybe a more industry-focused experience on campus for those students. And team projects, uh, we're ramping up um, as well. Uh, right, We're doing uh, very well there, offering uh, all kinds of student competition teams. I'm much more focused on supporting all of our competition teams, including as you know, you know, probably the SAE car teams, but uh, we have um, also uh, all kinds of robotics teams, right? Um, that uh, that list is almost endless of where students compete. Uh, so, uh, so once you have this experience, then you can make an informed decision, right? If you have done an internship in industry, you have done a research experience in a research lab, then you can decide, hey, 
what do I want to do with my next step when I graduate, right? That's, that's the key, right? It's, it's uh, you want to have as many experiences as, possibly to, uh, as possible to make an informed decision at the end of what you want to do in your next step when you graduate with your bachelor. That's really good advice. And speaking on the topic of being well-rounded and getting all these experiences, do you think it's important for ME students, you know, mechanical engineering being such a broad major, do you think it's important for those students to kind of like focus and get a niche or kind of like be open to any sort of product, any sort of any sort of industry and kind of be um, not focused on one specific topic? Yeah, I think it's a very personal decision that you, that you asked me. So, uh, uh, clearly, ME is very broad, but we're starting very broad, right? So initially, you have the mechanical side and the thermal side, and then we're building this up, right? You're starting on the thermal side with thermal, you're going in fluids and heat transfer uh, on the mechanical side, right? You have statics and dynamics, but then you also have materials. But then uh, there's maybe a third pillar, um, and that's kind of the, the mechanical, mechatronic side, right? The mechanical link with the, the ele electrical world, right? So uh, all of our ME students do uh, basic uh, uh, electrical circuits, but then you go into uh, systems and controls, right? And measurements and controls. Uh, so, uh, so by the time you're a junior, you have done these three pillars, I want to say, right? You have done this, uh, at least... Uh, uh, initial uh, courses in the thermal side, right? More maybe uh, towards the control side, more on the mechanicals and, and maybe material side. And if you see that you have a strength, right? If something comes more natural to you than others, then I would encourage you to further explore that, right? And so we're in the process of building concentrations that go along with this. So concentrations, uh, most of them will be aligned with kind of our broad areas of research. And uh, we have identified uh, 15 different research areas on our website, right? And it goes um, for all kinds of uh, uh, more the thermal sciences side, including like combustion and propulsion uh, things, but also uh, uh, like energy-related, energy production, sustainable energy production versus energy utilization, like how we're using energy, for example, in buildings. But then it goes through uh, uh, robotics, it goes through uh, human interaction, it goes into biomedical fields, biomechanics, uh, surgical robots, or so. Uh, it goes into transportation, autonomy, right? So, uh, uh, if you look at the opportunities, right, then uh, it is still the broadest area. Mechanical engineering is still the broadest area of all engineering fields. So if you find that you have, that something comes easy to you, you can explore that, right? We have six electives, ME electives plus tech electives, three and three, where you can dig deeper into a subject. And I would encourage you to do that, right? So uh, by the time, but if you, if you feel <clears throat> that not one area is really uh, necessarily yet for you as a junior, I would suggest uh, uh, stay on the, uh, on the more general course and take uh, courses from here and there to, uh, to further explore the, the wide field. So it's really a personal decision based on this. I got interested in the thermodynamics ever since I took my first thermal course, and I stayed on this track to this day. That doesn't mean... It's a right track. It's just something that worked really well for me, right? So it's, a, but it is a personal decision in my mind. So I know with uh, 
sustainability, which you mentioned, um, that's something that's really um, engaging for a lot of students. I know Aggie and I are both interested in that. Mm -hmm. What are some of the biggest um, research developments just lately in regards to sustainability, whether that's thermodynamics or just other areas of study? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so uh, clearly the biggest issue that we're facing, in my mind, in the 21st century is that of climate change. I mean, there are other issues. I shouldn't say maybe the biggest, right? We also need to worry about uh, clean water supply and, and food supply to feed the world, right? Uh, uh, and, uh, but uh, uh, climate change is a, it's a major issue that we address, and we're seeing... Uh, uh, and people are still, if you go out into the world, maybe there are still some uh, people that are hesitant to really buy into climate change. But it's not... It's not rocket science, right? It's rather simple, right? We're releasing certain gases into the atmosphere that prevent the Earth from ra radiating to the universe. Um, so early on, people called it the greenhouse effect, right? Where sun radiation can come into through the glass because it comes at a different wavelength, but the greenhouse is not radiating out because it radiates at a very different wavelength, and so that heat stays in. And that's the same for the Earth, right? Uh, sun radiation comes in at a certain wavelength, comes into our atmosphere, can break through these gases and these windows. Uh, but the Earth itself cannot radiate out in the universe because we closed some of those uh, windows for certain wavelengths that the Earth radiates. And so that is reflected onto ourselves and our, um, uh, our temperature rises. So what happens when the temperature rises? We're evaporating more water of the oceans. And uh, water itself is actually also uh, uh, a global warming gas. Uh, water, vapor in the, in the atmosphere actually also limits how much we can radiate out to the universe. So now we have water vapor at a higher temperature. And if you have done basic thermal, that means you have a lot more energy that in the atmosphere. And energy in the atmosphere leads to more catastrophic event. It's just, uh, it's a very simple thermodynamics to, to understand what's going on in the world, right? So uh, <clears throat> we, uh, we have uh, more hurricanes, we have more floods, but we also have more droughts, we have more, more, things, uh, more changes uh, to our climate. So we need to tackle that. And so... Uh, uh, lots of entities in all kinds of enterprises work, uh, in my mind, on, on two major topics to tackle it. One is the energy production. Like, how can we do sustainable energy production? Um, and that comes through uh, um, solar, to wind, to wave, right, to uh, hydropower if you have elevation Right, but uh, all kinds of, uh, but it also uh, can come through biofuels, right? So we can still burn something. I'm not saying that we shouldn't burn anything, right? We can still burn something if we create the fuel uh, at the same rate, uh, right? If you burn things, you're emitting CO2, right? Um, but if you grow stuff, you're absorbing CO2. So if we can get that in a sustainable matter where we can grow things at the same CO2 absorption rate as when we burn things, we're releasing CO2, we're still carbon neutral, right? So, uh, so there are different avenues how we can pursue sustainable energy production, and um, that 
uh, is uh, it's a major topic and uh, certainly has also tremendous financial resources uh, for research. But the other aspect, and that's more my world, is uh, how we can reduce the energy that we use. How can we be more efficient and not need as much production, right? If we can reduce our production while we still maintain our living standards and, uh, and comfort, right? But now we're using significantly less energy, right? We, uh, we, we don't have to produce as much and we're gaining on that end too. So both of them has to come up in balance and that's where we see uh, tremendous changes, yeah. At this rate of how we're combating all these sustainability issues, do you think we're headed towards doom or do you think humanity is going to survive we're going to make it out of this? <laughs> so uh, simple thermodynamics is based on three laws, right? Um, and we usually give them to you in a, uh, in a mathematical formula, right? Uh, but uh, in my world, when I teach uh, thermo, I, I give an analogy, right? And um, uh, I give you a, a soccer analogy, if you like. Uh, so uh, we, uh, uh, the first law is the conservation of energy. Energy in is energy out. You cannot create energy from nothing. Um, so in the analogy, um, you can only tie. Right? You have all kinds of processes, but you cannot create something from nothing. You can only, right, you play a game, you can only tie the game. Right? Nobody can win. Energy will just be conserved in its form. So the second law, right, um, related uh, to irreversibility, entropy production, entropy generation, means that every process is irreversible. During every energy conversion process that we pursue, uh, we're, we're losing a little bit of energy, right? We're creating irreversibilities. So uh, second law will actually tell you that... Uh, you will always lose. Yeah, yeah, right? There's no way right, to actually be truly reversible and tie. Um, and then the third law says that there's uh, absolute equilibrium is at zero Kelvin, which means at zero Kelvin, nothing happens. You're in absolute equilibrium and you can stop doing anything. But... Uh, uh, we can't reach zero Kelvin, which means the third law indirectly tells you you can't quit the game. You have to keep on playing, right? even though you're always losing. So uh, coming to your question, that looks a little bit like a doomsday scenario, right? Uh, now, uh, right, if, you, if you think about uh, our world, right, where our energy comes from, it comes... Uh, to a significant portion from the sun, right? The sun is a burning star. And, uh, but we all know it will only burn for so long. Now, that may be a million of year horizon, but at some point, that light will go out, right? And so there, there you go, right? So something has to happen at that time. Well, hopefully we are in, in deep space travel by then and we can go to a new, a new area where we have a new sun. But I don't know, right? So that's, uh, uh, we will have opportunities to live for a long time. I don't want to create uh, uh, like a philosophical uh, doomsday scenario, right? Uh, uh, but it's, uh, it is just fact of, of thermo that you are 
going in one direction, right? And uh, that uh, at some point has to be, uh, be addressed, but uh, it's a very, very long time horizon, yeah. So you have these basic laws that you kind of outlined. What are some of the specific applications, um, whether that's technology research that you've been involved with that mm -hmm. have kind of taken these ideas, these big theories, and put them to work um, with actual applications? Mm -hmm. So uh, we, uh, I particular work, as I mentioned, on, uh, in, in an area that we call energy utilization, how to make energy and use more efficient. Uh, and the big applications are heating and cooling of buildings. They consume about 40% uh, of uh, today's energy consumption, both on the residential, uh, in the residential energy consumption as well as in the commercial energy co uh, consumption, and then also refrigeration applications. Um, so refrigeration applications are extremely important uh, in, in the food industry, all the way from uh, uh, harvesting uh, to, to uh, transport, storage, right? Um, you all go to supermarket and shop, right? All the display cases, right? All the frozen food, right? It's all refrigeration. Um, so for, for food preservation and uh, transport and supplying food to the world, it's important. But it's uh, also super important in the medical field. Right, blood banks run at minus 80 degrees Celsius, right? all kinds of human tissue and structures that you need for, for different um, uh, right, things uh, in the medical field, uh, need a significant refrigeration. Uh, and the list goes on. It's petrochemical, it's pharmaceutical. right? Um, so the industrial sector also is a huge energy consumer. And that's, that's a field I play in, if you want to call it play, where this is a field where I conduct research, right? So, uh, and it's all about uh, the systems that create either heating uh, or cooling or refrigeration, right, um, to the world. And then the most common system is a vapor compression cycle, which is the reverse cycle of the Rankine cycle, which is the main power plant cycle used. Uh, nowadays, as I mentioned, if we go to sustainable energy, and we have wind and wave and hydro, so we're not, in those cases, we don't use the Rankine cycle uh, necessarily anymore, right? But uh, in the classical uh, cycle, when we uh, produce most of our energies through fossil fuel combustion, right, coal power, fired power plants, or even nuclear power plants, right, run on the Rankine cycle. So vapor compression cycle is the reversed. You're putting energy in and you're pumping heat from a lower temperature level to a higher temperature level. And you can move that temperature field anywhere, right? You can go uh, below ambient temperature, so then you have cooling, or if you go far below refrigeration, uh, if you move the, the cycle above ambient, you have a heat pump cycle, and you can do heating. Um, and so I work on a novel cycle architecture to make the cycle more efficient. I work on individual uh, components like heat exchangers, but more predominantly compressors to make uh, uh, the cycle more efficient, right? So you can work on an individual component first, and then once you have optimized all four components, you put it in a cycle, then you, uh, you create uh, maybe a novel cycle architecture with some tweaks and some bells and whistles, and uh, you can uh, push all of that uh, with respect to... Uh, 
improving actually second law efficiency, like the, the irreversibility, reduction of the irreversibility. The most efficient cycle, as we all know, the total reversible cycle is the Kano cycle. That's the reference cycle. And we want to get as close to Kano as possible to have uh, as few losses as possible in all of these uh, energy conversion systems. So in this sense, what are some of the largest and most innovative uh, developments coming soon to us in the field of thermodynamics? So uh, uh, in this field that I'm working in, like specifically on the vapor compression cycle, we're still looking at uh, alternate working fluids that operate inside the cycle. Uh, and that is an interesting uh, topic by itself. So uh, when the vapor compression cycle was invented in the mid to late 1800s, the fluids that were used at that time were fluids that people had readily available. That includes uh, CO2 as a working fluid, ammonia, uh, even water was used that cannot be used, of course, below freezing, but uh, can be used in a heat pump cycle above uh, ambient temperature or even a little bit to cooling as long as you do cooling above zero degrees Celsius. Um, so uh, um, common substances, if you uh, want to call them, so then um, in the mid-1930s, Tom Midgley actually invented what at that point uh, were quickly known as the Freons. That was a brand name uh, introduced. Uh, they're really uh, more uh, chlorofluorocarbons by trade names or CFCs. They contain chlorine, which then uh, 40 years later or so in the mid-70s, we could discover deplete the ozone layer and we had to get rid of. So, uh, so we replaced the CFCs um, with uh, what's now called common HFCs, hydrofluorocarbons. Turns out HFCs all have high global warming potential. So when they're released to the environment, um, they contribute to the global warming, to the climate change uh, aspect. So now we're, we're uh, at task to replace the HFCs. Uh, chemical industry has yet started uh, manufacturing a new type of fluid they call an HFO, a hydrofluorolefin. Uh, that is uh, still not without question and maybe environmental concerns to some extent, potentially. Um, but also maybe human concerns, right? New fluid, you never know what it does in the long run. So uh, most of the world is interested in going back 100 years or more, when we used actually ammonia, CO2, now uh, we also want to use hydrocarbons, highly flammable explosive fluids, but contained in a closed mechanical system. We're doing this in many other applications. I think we can control it. And so if we go uh, that route, we're seeing really uh, a revolution of this industry. It, uh, all of these working fluids, what people call natural refrigerants, uh, require different technology. So we're working very heavily on uh, developing and investigating systems right, with ammonia, with hydrocarbons, with CO2, for many different applications that I mentioned, right? all of these heating, cooling, and refrigeration applications uh, to, uh, uh, that require, in many cases, also not just now, efficiency consideration or uh, safety consideration. So I'll give you a, a quick example. So, uh, for example, 
uh, high-rise uh, air conditioning. If you go to large downtown, New York, Chicago, right, Houston, wherever you are, is done with large centrifugal chillers. These chillers work on a vapor compression cycle, but the compressor is a large centrifugal chiller because you need to push a lot of refrigerant at a high volume flow, right, um, through the chiller to create chilled water that you then pump throughout the entire high-rise structure. This was um, up until the 70s done with the refrigerant CFC, the chlorofluorocarbon R11. Um, it contained chlorine. It, uh, that fluid, when released to the atmosphere, depleted the ozone layer. It was replaced. Replacement was tricky, was difficult. Um, not, not a single fluid really that had the thermodynamic efficiency that actually R11 had to this day. Very challenging. Uh, most people went to R134A. That's just a number, but it is uh, an HFC. Right, uh, no chlorine, no ozone depletion, but uh, still a significant global warming potential. Um, we're using that. Uh, we're still debating what we're going to use long term in the future. But I'm working with a company out of Scotland called Star Refrigeration. They built an ammonia chiller in downtown London for high-rise air conditioning. That's. Uh, 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 like uh, air, air conditioning plant, right? So uh, as we all know, ammonia can be toxic. And now you have in the, in the basement or at some floor of the high-rise building, you have easily like 2,000 pounds of ammonia. Wow. So, so what are you going to do with that, right? By the way, ammonia is as efficient, maybe even a little bit more efficient than I-11, Right, it's a, it's a has superior thermodynamic characteristics as a working fluid in a refrigeration or cooling cycle. Um, so what are you going to do? Well, ammonia is solvable in water. You put a ten thousand liter water tank on top of the machine room where the ammonia is. You install a sensor that detects ammonia. If you have a catastrophic failure and let's say total loss of charge. You're flooding the entire room with water. No ammonia will leak out of the room, but now the entire system, right, your entire refrigeration or, or cooling system is completely underwater. All the ammonia gets absorbed in the water, and the water is drained of a liquid line at the bottom of the room, and you have hydrous uh, water solution, and you can handle that, right? You just now drain it, uh, and, and release it without any impact on human. Capital investment for a system like this is huge, much more costly, but environmental impact of the system is improved on both levels. You're not using a refrigerant that contributes to global warming, and you have a system that is probably pushing uh, thermodynamic limits with respect to energy efficiency. So is it ever uh, challenging when you have um, these research innovations um, and you're looking to put them into the real world with that timeline? It, I know it could probably be very tough um, to actually, because you yeah. need money, you need all these other things. That's is it right. ever challenging um, to work through that? Yes, it is. Um, actually, I think the biggest challenge is, uh, is finances, is really money, right? Because all of these novel systems will cost you more money. There's no, there's no question. Um, 
because they like uh, we're also talking about um, using, for example, propane, a hydrocarbon in residential air conditioner and heat pumps. Now you have a flammable refrigerant. You can't bring it really into the house, right? If you have an ignition source, if you have a leak, right? So, so then you need like, maybe a secondary fluid system, right? So you need the safety measures. So, so how do we get actually to change the industry to change to uh, making these investments, right? So I think as energy becomes more more costly, because we're also on the production side, maybe use more sustainable, more expensive technology, um, there will be always a market to push uh, efficiency at that time, right? Um, so, so some technology that is not as costly will can be introduced on a reasonable payback because the energy that you're saving well, will save you a lot of money. But in some other instances, we're seeing governments intervening. So this is not happening in the U.S. We're capital, uh, capitalistic, and we like for industry to sort it out. But Europe uh, does it quite differently. So Scandinavia, for example, started a tax on HFC refrigerants. Um, so uh, this is like, for example, the 134A that I mentioned, but also... Uh, in particular, the refrigerants that are used in supermarkets. Um, this is 404A, as well as 547, uh, common refrigerants for supermarkets. Uh, so uh, in those, uh, those refrigerants in the U.S., up until recently, like uh, 10 years ago, so you could buy for like $10 a pound, not very expensive. And Europe started in early 2000, or 20 years ago, uh, that you have to buy them for a hundred dollars a pound. So so now you uh, you put a ninety dollar delta on the refrigerant, and so uh, what are you going to do with this money, right? So it's just taxes collected by the government. Uh, if you are installing a new supermarket in Denmark or Sweden, and you're designing the system. Uh, these supermarkets can easily take 2,000 pounds of refrigerant. So uh, if you take 2,000 uh, pounds times $100, this is $200,000 that you need to make an investment into the system just to charge it with refrigerant in Denmark or Sweden. That is now the delta that if you build a CO2 system that you have, to make the CO2 system cost competitive. You basically, the government just gave you a delta of $200,000, right, to make an investment into the system. And that's why we see uh, in Northern and Western Europe, predominantly CO2 systems as CO2 uh, in supermarkets. More than 3,000 systems have already installed, and nowadays all new supermarkets that are being uh, in, uh, being uh, put online are all running on CO2. So it's uh, it's really, uh, in this case, the government helping certain technology being introduced into the market. Can that happen in the U.S.? Uh, maybe not, right? We have a very different mentality on this, right? And we really don't like for the government to interfere with us. But uh, it, is, uh, it is a possibility. So on that topic, um, you mentioned you were from Germany. And I wanted to learn more about how German engineering practices kind of stands out and differs from uh, practice in the U.S. I know there's an entire study abroad program about engineering in Germany. Um, yeah. Yeah, so uh, the educational system in Germany is fundamentally different from us uh, that uh, uh, you basically, if you go uh, 
uh, to university, you go to lectures all semester long without any homework, without any quiz, without pretty much just uh, any midterm exam, um, and you just have one final. And wow. your entire grade at the end is on that one final. And so, uh, so that, that means as a student, you need to be motivated enough, driven enough, to really stick with the materials throughout the entire semester so that uh, at the end you're fully prepared for the exam. And then you need to study. We sometimes studied like several weeks for that final exams, did nothing but every day just solving problems to prepare ourselves for that final exam. So that mentality translates also to industry. Right, so we're educating German engineers to be completely self-sufficient, to completely be be driven and and uh, and move themselves forward, and that's what happened in industry too. Yeah, you as an engineer, you will be working less under supervision, less on daily tasks, more on you get the project, it's your project, you need to run with it, right? You got educated that you. Uh, took all the resources over a time together to to move yourself forward. So now you're on your own. Now you uh, uh, you can do it uh, by yourself. I'm not saying it's a good system. I'm not saying that. But it is what it is. Over the years, um, Germany is moving more into the U.S. educational system. I can give you some uh, examples, right? So when I, for example, uh, did Thermo uh, at Bochum, uh, we had Thermo 1 and Thermo 2, what we would call ME 200, ME 300, in sequence, like first semester, second semester. We didn't even have an exam after Thermo 1. We had two semesters of Thermo, oh and then we had one three-hour Thermo exam covering both Thermo 1 and 2. Oh it's gosh. nuts, right? <laughs> Actually, on my whole, uh, right? Uh, I don't know. I mean, if you look at my my transcript, right? At the end, math was even worse. We had three semesters of math and then one five-hour math exam. Wow! Right, covering all three semesters. Right? It's a nut. It's a it's a ridiculous system. Germany doesn't do that anymore. So Germany now, like uh, in our exchange program with KIT. We'll write an exam after each semester. And they also, like I said, I had no, nothing to do in thermal throughout the semester. I mean, we got practice problems and so recitations. You can go there, but they had no impact, right? If you go or not go, it's totally up to you, right? If you do the problems, if you not do the problems, all up to you, right? There's no consequence. And, and KIT, like Karlsruhe Institute of Technology, has, has already changed that now. You actually have to take five quizzes throughout the semester, and you have to uh, get a score on the quizzes of 70 or better or something like this, on the average of all quizzes, to be allowed to take the final exam. So the quizzes still don't feed into your final grade, but you have precursors, you have stepping stones to be allowed to take the final exam so that you're better prepared for the final exams. Because I can tell you, uh, uh, the son of a good friend of mine is currently studying uh, 
uh, at uh, thermodynamics, right, at a German university. And the, he took uh, that first exam. It had a failure quote of 70%. Oh, my gosh. At a German university this summer. That's to me is like inexcusable. At that point, I would argue: Do the German professor really teach thermo? I don't know, right? I mean, <laughs> uh, you cannot. It's demotivating to the students, right? It's not right, right? And you, you're now failing out a lot of students that could be excellent engineers because you don't provide them the support through the semester, the guidance to stay with the material and and move forward. Um, so uh, there are good reasons why I choose uh, my career in the U.S. I do like the U.S. system much better. We're much closer to students. We're, we're, we're putting more emphasis on the individual students. We like for the students to succeed because we need more engineers in the world, right? We have many problems to tackle. And um, in my mind, we're still not educating enough engineers to do so. It would be interesting to see, like, the different... Um I don't know, retaining rates for uh, the different systems, whether like studying all for one test allows you to actually remember the material, which I don't think it probably would versus kind of yeah. having quizzes and yes. tests throughout yeah. the semester. Um, I agree with you. It's like absolutely. AP exams on steroids. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. Um, so I'd say our uh, final question for yeah. you then would be, um, what are some of the initiatives that ME students um, could be looking forward to um, in the future, in the next few years here mm -hmm. at Purdue? Yeah, I already mentioned grit. That's important. I want to build this farther out. But uh, one thing that is uh, very close to my heart, too, and that we're really, uh, uh, where we're changing the undergraduate curriculum right now is what we call our design and manufacturing course sequence. Uh, as you all know, so when I grew up, I, uh, I tuned little motorcycle engines. That was the first, and then I got into bigger motorcycle uh, engines when I turned 18, right? But I, we took complete internal combustion engines apart and tried to make uh, uh, this engine go faster, right? That was always, they were all limited, right? They were only allowed, uh, like the very little, tiny little mopeds can only drive like 25 kilometers an hour, right? We tried to get them to 40 or 50, right? So then the next size up, right, uh, was like limited to 40 kilometers an hour. So we tried to get them to 80, right? So that's not happening in today's world anymore, right? The students on average that we're getting have much less of these tinkering, hands-on experience, garage work experience from their home environment. Uh, they're all very savvy, with cell phones, uh, my own uh, right daughters can do on a cell phone what I never can do. I don't know. <laughs> they can manipulate things. I, I'm just lost by that, right? Different generation. But, uh, uh, but these hands-on experience, how, how things work and physically come together is so important for any engineer. So uh, we're revamping our sophomore design course, 263, into uh, giving a more, uh, more smaller, multiple hands-on projects instead of more of a longer, semester-long projects. We're creating a new 363 that will be the bridge over between 263 and 463 senior design that all students on this, uh, the junior level also have um, this hands-on uh, team project experience uh, with building something 
And that ultimately then culminates in, uh, in 463, our senior capstone design, where everybody really needs to build a, a functional prototype coming out of our system. Right? So that whole sequence is extremely important to me, and it's, uh, we're really uh, putting a lot of effort in, in uh, creating that, uh, that sequence. And we, we're working, especially on the junior level now, in something that I mentioned earlier, uh, that is our student competition team. So you don't necessarily have to do a separate class project. If you do a project that has some type of student competition at the end with other university, uh, and you find a faculty advisor that um, that advises you on the project, we're going to use that project actually uh, uh, as the lab component for 363 in the future. I'm very excited about this, right? Having that having something designed, built, and manufactured on the, on the sophomore level, on the junior level, and then on the senior level throughout the entire curriculum. That sounds really exciting. I, yeah. I feel like I should just go walk under the bell tower and keep myself here to see these initiatives come through. That sounds awesome. Yeah. But yeah, Dr. Grill, it was fantastic having you on our podcast today. We really enjoyed everything you have to say about the world of thermodynamics, sustainability. It was a really interesting conversation. And also hearing about like your future initiatives, that was yeah awesome to hear about. So thank you so much. And uh, thanks for joining us on our episode today. You're very welcome. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. I appreciate it. Yeah. So uh, for our listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. And we hope you really enjoyed our talk talk with uh, Dr. Grohl. Um, feel free to check out the timestamps for the various topics we covered today. Um, you can also check out my own podcast, the Expedition Success Podcast, which will be linked below. If you have any feedback, guest requests, comments, or any other inquiries, please contact us at asme.podcast at gmail.com, or you can fill out the Google form link below. As always, we want to connect with our listeners on LinkedIn, so feel free to check out those in the description below as well. We hope you'll join us on the next episode.